Well, good morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We'll be in Luke chapter 2. Two weeks ago, Ryan Money uh, started up our Advent series uh, called Christmas Playlist. Can we get a hand clap for Ryan? Yeah, Wes also. Uh, snaps for Wes because he's a jazz guy. I've gotten a lot of comments like, Ryan reminds me a lot like you, except he's younger and better. Um, so that was actually Ryan's first and last time to preach. Sometimes you can preach yourself out of a job. Uh, but I appreciate um, Ryan and Wes uh, stepping up. Um, I was able to go and speak uh, at a weekend retreat and then also at another church. Uh, and both of the groups wanted me to pass along appreciation to you um, for the opportunity to let me do that. Uh, and then both were also impressed that we don't have to go pay and beg someone to come speak if I'm not here because we've got a multitude of people uh, I can't leave enough to get all the people qualified to come and, and preach, uh, able uh, to have chances. And so thank you to you guys. Thank you to those who preached. Um, it is a, a great thing that even though I, I very much miss being with you, um, that we trust that the Spirit still works and uh, that there's no, uh, no drop-off. Um, hopefully there's no climb-up either, but uh, there's, there's definitely no drop-off. I can say that for sure. Now, before we get into our sermon this morning and the song that we're looking at, so this series is called Christmas Playlists, and so there are these four songs that are sung in the Christmas narrative in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going through them one by one. Uh, I want to say a brief word that has nothing to do with the sermon and or church, other than it's about me. Um, as many of you know, I'm getting married very soon. Uh, thank you. I did, in fact, trick a woman into <laughs> signing a spender of her life. Lindsay asked for your prayers. Uh, now, from the very, from when we got engaged in July, uh, Lindsay and I's, one of our biggest fears was that people's feelings would get hurt if they were not invited to the wedding. Um, Weddings are expensive. <laughs> yes. Like very, very expensive. <laughs> and if, if you've been at the church for six months, so when we did this in July, when we had to make these decisions, uh, or if I've known you, or if Lindsay's known you for more than that time, uh, I can guarantee you that you were on the list that we brought to the table. Uh, when we came together, we had to whittle it down to 150, which was partly my fault because my family is almost 50 people. That's like, uh, you know, I was planning on not inviting some of them. My parents had other ideas. Uh, and so um, I want you to hear this from me. Um, if you weren't invited, uh, I still worry that your feelings are hurt. And I want you to hear that if we had the money to have a bigger wedding, you would all be the first people added to those invited. 
so I ask for forgiveness if your feelings were hurt, uh, and then I ask for you to trust and believe me when I say that uh, you were on the list. Um, it was hard work. We both cried trying to get that list down to 150, and I'm about to cry right now as a little baby. Um, <laughs> what we wanted to do, we did want to celebrate with our entire church family and not have any number lists put on us or anything like that. And so we are having a welcome back reception when we get back from our honeymoon on January 3rd. Uh, and so that'll probably be upstairs and downstairs um, here at the church after the second service. Um, there are paper <coughs> invites that we're trying to get mailed out to everybody we have an address for. Um, but it's also just going to be announced on social media and announced at church. And so um, we would be more than honored if you would join us for that as a moment of celebration. Um, good? Are we okay? Okay. Thank you for that. Um, it was a lot harder than I think either of us anticipated. Uh, and sincerely, we would hope that you would be able to join us on the third uh, when we get back from our honeymoon, have a nice tan, and uh, <laughs> be able to go along. So, let's. Uh, with that said, let's get into our sermon uh, for this morning. Our text is very, very interesting. Uh, I'm guaranteeing you it's more interesting to me than it is to you. Uh, and so, I'll try not to nerd out. We're going to be reading. Um, Luke 2, chapter, or verses 8 through 14. And this is our third song we find in the Christmas story in Luke. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. How many of the people? Aww. All the people. Indiscriminate, universal, inclusive. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, Bethlehem, a Savior, a Messiah, a Rescuer, a King, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, and you'll notice in your Bibles, it now goes into poetry. Uh, it's a song. It's a poem. These are lyrics. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Um, now, we're going to be focusing on that song. It's, it's really one verse in the Bible. It seems it's kind of a short song. This whole story, though, is, I think, very familiar to most of us, right? Through various things, whether you watch Charlie Brown Christmas or you um, know some very popular hymns, um, these words and these themes are um, repeated commonly, uh, especially around Christmas. The angel of the Lord appeared and the glory shone around them. And you have these shepherds receiving this call. You'll know, hopefully, Luke and Matthew have slightly different Christmas stories. Um, not contradictory, but they tell different details, right? And so this narrative is not in the Gospel of Matthew. We, we only get this song and this angelic announcement from uh, the Gospel of Luke. Now, let's focus for a minute on chapter, on verse 14. Because this is where the really interesting questions get in. And so we're going to zoom in 
to verse 14, get a little technical, and then zoom back out and head towards application, okay? Um, so if we zoom in on verse 14, we have this poem, this song, Glory to God in the Highest. We've talked about different songs do different things. Songs pick a fight. <coughs> songs celebrate. This song seems to be a song of praise, a song of news, uh, glory to God in the highest. This, this word glory is a, a very biblical word. Um, it, it, it shows up in lots of different senses throughout the scriptures. Here it seems to be somewhat of a synonym for praise. Um, glory is the maybe overwhelming sense of worship you feel standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon. Where you feel so small and where the world feels so big and beautiful, right? This is the sense of perhaps God's glory being revealed. The Old Testament often tells its um, God's people, give glory to the Lord. and uh, describes the glory of the Lord. And the glory of the Lord usually is so overwhelming, people fall down, uh, cover their faces, things of that nature. It's this kind of overwhelming beauty um, that is uh, characteristic of the presence of God. And so it's a, it's a call to, to praise, glory to God in the highest. Um, now when the angels start singing here, um, like all worship, we should see this not as a momentary, temporary action of worship. Uh, now this is a specific time of worship for Jesus' birth into the world. Um, but the scriptures would tell us, and particularly in Revelation, this moving scene in chapters 1 and 5, that at all times, um, this morning at 4 a.m., today at 2 p.m., there are heavenly hosts around the throne of God in heaven, as well as those who are dead in Christ. And they are constantly singing and praising and worshiping the Savior. Which means it has very uh, unique value for our idea of worship, right? When Chris gets up here and starts singing, when he does the first strum on his guitar, or got his shoes on, uh, we aren't starting worship. We're joining worship. Do you see the difference there? Um, we're not, we don't have the ability to start a worship service. Uh, our call as, as human beings right now is to intentionally and repetitively join in the worship that's always occurring. From creation itself, from the heavenly host, from those who are asleep in heaven in God's presence. Um, and so the angels, more than start singing, give us a glimpse of the praise that's always happening around um, the Father in heaven. And in this instance, the praise um, being towards God's rescue plan is a salvation plan through his son, through the birth of his son as a human being. Glory to God in the highest, and then this is where it gets tricky. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Um, now this is a very, very, very debated verse. Um, initial reading from our ESV Bibles uh, seems to be that there's going to be peace given to people. It's an announcement. Good news, peace is coming. But to an exclusive group, to a group of people somehow who have pleased God, maybe through their actions or through their faith or something of that sort. Um, the question we have, naturally, I think, is who is that people, 
Are we part of those people? Are we not part of those people? Who are those people back then? And the second question we have is how do you please God? Right? I mean, how would you get into this category versus how would you get out of this category? The third question you might be thinking is, I've heard this verse not quoted like this. I've heard other versions of this. In fact, some of the most famous hymns used this verse have other versions. Um, I'm going to argue today your ESV here has done you a disfavor, dissatisfaction. I do not think this is the way the Bible should read. That is the second part of this um, hymn. First, though, I'll read you some different translations. Okay? Since about 1881, most translations have gone with this idea. Um, Glory to God in the highest, this is the MLV, and peace on earth in men, good pleasure. Glory in the highest unto God and on earth, peace among men of goodwill. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth, goodwill among men. You'll notice the pleasing to men is more of a modern translation and try to get out uh, a sense of this word goodwill. The word in the Greek is actually goodwill. Um, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and good hope for men. Glory in highest heavens to God on earth, peace among men, goodwill. Glory to God in the highest, on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Um, glory, here are some of the uh, <clears throat> more uh, ones we're familiar with. Glory to God in the highest, on earth, peace among men, with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to people he favors. Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth to people who enjoy his favor. Um, and then the King James Version, which is probably the one that's cemented in a lot of the traditions, reads like this. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. You can notice that's a lot more inclusive, right? It's not selecting a subset of people uh, with whom God is pleased. Now, in my research, um, the reason you have two separate ways to translate this is not because it's actually a translation decision. It's a manuscript decision. So we have two early copies of Luke that have goodwill in different forms. One is in a noun form, a nominative form, um, which would lead to the King James Version. Um, Glory to God, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Um, And then the second version uh, is uh, in the genitive, goodwill is in the genitive, which means it's uh, like an of word. Genitive, in Greek, they don't have of. So you put a word in the genitive, and it includes the of. So it goes, glory to God, peace on earth, and goodwill, and on people of goodwill. Does that make sense? Um, the word man, people there, is in the, is in the Greek. Um, the two texts uh, are both, uh, they both have strong evidence towards both of them. Um, Greek scholars argue for both of them. Um, I will say I think that the Byzantine, or the one in the nominative, the more inclusive version, is the earliest um, among church fathers who quote or um, refer to it in the nominative, which would read, goodwill to men, would be Eusebius, Ephraphus, Titus, Gregory of Nazianus, Epinephrus, Philo, Didymus, John Chrysostom, Cyril of Alexandria, which if you know anything about me, that's my guy. That's what I did my research on. Theodotus, uh, Marsus, um, and then other scholars of that nature. Um, it appears that in the Western tradition, someone added one letter. It's just an N. It looks like a V. The Greek word for N and, or letter for N in Greek looks like RV. Um, and it changes that to a genitive. 
Um, so here's how I'm going to read the text. Here's how I do read the text. You can disagree with me. You can agree with me. Um, I'll read the text like this. It's actually a triplet poem. There are three parallel lines. The first one is glory to God in the highest. The second one is on earth peace. And the third one is goodwill to human beings. And all three of them, an announcement is made of a truth that has now become reality because of this swaddling cloth, manger lying baby. Now let's step back a little bit and look at the context. Um, a couple of interesting things about this passage. The angel shows up. Typically, we assume it's angel Gabriel. He's the announcer angel. Um, people are afraid. Wes mentioned last week, most people are afraid when the angel shows up. Um, and then all of a sudden, we're told a heavenly host appear and start singing. Um, I mean, try to imagine this scene. It's the middle of the night. Um, and then, not only that, heavenly host actually in the Greek means the armies of God. These are not sweet, angelic, round babies. <laughs> Glory to God in the highest. I know you're wondering why I'm not a worship pastor. Um, <laughs> angel shows up. Angel announces news, right? I bring you news of great joy for all the people. The Savior is being born. And all of a sudden, the heavens rip open, and you see the armies of God, the angelic armies, and they start singing a song. Glory to God, peace on earth, and goodwill to men. And who are they singing it to, and when are they singing it? They're singing it in the middle of the night to shepherds. Now again, we typically think of the shepherds in the middle of the night in terms of like a hallmark imagery sort of way. Um, the shepherds are kind of cute and kept looking. Uh, it's the middle of the night, there's like stars out, it's really beautiful, there's a nice little landscape behind them. Um, in reality, shepherds in the first century, shepherding was one of the lowest jobs you could have. Uh, as one of my favorite pastors says, it was like on the list of least sexy jobs in the world. You know they make lists like this, at least in terms of paying, I've seen it. Uh, the worst three paying jobs include teacher and pastor. Two for three. All right. <laughs> Called long-term planning, kids. <laughs> Shepherding, in fact, was... So looked down upon, the Pharisees were for sinner. Remember, they didn't like to hang out with sinners. It was a, not just a, like we're all sinners, but it was a group of professions and jobs, like prostitutes and things of that nature. Uh, shepherd, the word they used for shepherd was that word sinner. Um, most people would consider a shepherd a criminal. If you came across a shepherd, you would not go try to meet him and hear some stories. Um, you would stay away from him. Um, shepherds were, think of like how we imagine cowboys in the wild, wild west. Um, they're rough around the edge. They've probably done some things you don't want to know about. Uh, and they're probably capable of doing some things that you don't want them to try to do to or around you. Um, shepherds are people who have no family life. 
for whatever reason, maybe personality or maybe something's happened in their village, they've chosen to live the rest of their lives out in the middle of nowhere, basically by themselves, watching over sheep. This is not like Caesar Milan, dog whisperer. Um, sheep give you no affection. They're very stupid animals. Um, and the job of a shepherd, basically, that was their money. I mean, it was like watching over a bank account. The job of a shepherd was basically, at any time, think about why they're up in the middle of the night. Because at any time, the sheep could do something stupid and hurt itself. A wolf or other animal could come and kill your sheep. Or someone else, maybe another shepherd, would come and steal your sheep. And at any time, you'd have to have the skills and ability and wherewithal to keep those things from happening. These are not sweet, mild, meek men. I'm not trying to, 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 to make all shepherds seem like horrible people. I'm sure there were some nice ones. Um, but to really get into the historical context of this, um, you've got to understand who shepherds are. Um, they're, one, not important, and then two, not the most peaceful, goodwill type of men in the world. Um, but so these people, in the middle of the night, like we've seen and will see continued throughout the Christmas story, God comes to the most unusual places. And when his son is born, it's not born in the capital city, right, with lots of fanfare. He's born in a little manger. Um, he comes to the shepherds, and he gives them this announcement. And the announcement is the announcement of the birth of the king. These shepherds are most likely Jewish most likely familiar at some level with the expectation and promise of a Messiah. This idea that a king, God would send a king, uh, and he would come and he would rule the nations with justice. He would fix all that's gone wrong in the world. Perhaps the most remarkable thing about the story is not that the angel and the armies appeared and, and sung, but that if you keep reading, the shepherds actually leave and go try to find this baby. Um, you might not peg the shepherds as the type of people who would be so willing. Um, there's, we don't know whether they got their sheep back. It's likely they didn't, if at all. We don't know even whether they're followers of Jesus. They just went on this trek to see this child. Um, but it would be the equivalent of you walking away from your 401k sitting in your lawn to go and find out whether this heavenly vision was true or not. They respond with faith and with worship. Um, and I think the shepherds provide a very unique backdrop to the message of the song, the playlist, the lyrics here. If you read earlier in Luke, in Luke chapter 2, the whole story is put in the context of Caesar Augustus, the king of kings, the emperor of the entire world. Um, again, it's not exclusive, it's inclusive. He's over everybody. And it's put in the context of a census that's being taken of all people. Again, everyone's being counted up. And in that context, the angels come and say, good news to all people. And then the song comes and says, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, and goodwill toward men. Um, this is very political language, through and through and through. Um, the Romans' biggest claim to fame was that they offered the world peace. Pax Romana. Um, now, there's different kinds of peace. And peace is what I want to focus in on in this song. 
Um, the news we're given is that there's peace on earth now and good things, good pleasure towards mankind because of Jesus' birth. Roman peace was indeed a kind of peace. When you're able to crucify hundreds of thousands of people at your whim, people do what they, you tell them to do, and you can get people to stop fighting with each other. You can get people to start fighting with each other if you want them to for your purposes, those kind of things. Rome claimed to be the first empire in the whole world with the ability and power to be so strong that they could kind of police the world. Might remind us of another situation that I would not describe or talk about. Um, but sometimes empires get so built up, right, um, that they stretch their hands out into every corner and claim to bring peace. Now, there's two types of peace. The Roman type of peace was peace through blood. Um, it was not a peace in terms of, like, coffee time with your little girl. Um, it was a peace in terms of subjugation, in terms of if you did something other than what they wanted you to, they would kill you, and they would kill you fast and humiliatingly and painfully. The biblical version of peace, though, and the word used here uh, and elsewhere uh, in the scriptures and in particularly the New Testament, on earth, peace, is not just referring to the absence of violence or to the absence of conflict. Anyone in a relationship is aware of this, right? You can not have conflict but still not have peace. Does that make sense? You might not be talking about something or yelling to somebody about something, but the relationship is not restored. Right? There's still something there simmering in the middle, um, whether it's unspoken or never resolved or things of that nature. Peace in the biblical sense, though, is holistic. It's not just the absence of bad things. It's the filling of good things. It's complete reconciliation. It's uh, the word shalom in the Hebrew. It's this, um, every part is working together and working rightly together. Um, and it, it's not a distant um, absence of violence. It's a closeness full of joy and full of sharing and, and full of mutual respect and mutual love and mutual sacrifice. And the angels show up and announce that because of Jesus and his birth, there will be peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And I want to suggest that what Christians have done, by and far, is we have completely ignored this part of the good news. And it's been easy to ignore this news that there will be peace on earth. Because it's fairly evident there's not peace on earth. I mean, if just take the last month. People are not living in peace. The world is not a peaceful place. Um, and so what most Christians have done, for some good reasons and then for maybe some bad reasons, or is, is they've pushed peace on earth um, either to an inner tranquility, so it becomes less about actual peace and more about like peace inside of you like a Buddhist kind of stoicism uh, attitude that you might have. Um, you can have peace, but it would be foolish to really expect me to have peace with you or nations to have peace with other nations or things of that nature. 
We do that and or we push peace back to Jesus' second coming. We say when he returns, boom, that's when the fireworks happen. And that's when, just like Rome, peace is in play. But it's again peace by blood. I argue Jesus brings peace by blood, but by his own blood. And I would argue that throughout the scriptures, particularly in the New Testament, um, the scriptures are very serious with this idea that with the kingdom Jesus has inaugurated 2,000 years ago, not coming to consummate, but it's already been inaugurated that we're living in the middle of right now, the expectation, hope, and work of his people should be for peace. If you look very carefully throughout the New Testament, you'll find peace, that word, is often over 100 times included in a group of words to describe salvation. And no serious biblical scholar thinks it's peace on the inside of your heart. Now, is that a blessing of the gospel? Yes. For people who who struggle inside... Um, there's peace to be had, peace with God. But throughout the scriptures, that peace is to extend outside of you and God towards other people. Um, The biggest example of this in the New Testament is the peace that Jesus creates between the Jews and Gentiles. (coughs) Ephesians 2, it's peace that Jesus accomplishes on the cross. Not a spiritualized inner peace, but a literal peace between two people who hate each other, create rumors about each other. Remember the Jews used to say that, I've used this before, the Gentiles would hide dead babies under their floors, um, and the Gentiles would say equally evil things about the Jews. Neither of them were probably right, but humans have a tendency, once we've demonized a group, to create more and more rumors to be afraid of them, uh, and to give us ourselves excuses not to go in their houses, not to talk to them, not to eat with them. Um, Ephesians says... Through the cross, he's torn down the wall of hostility. And there's this one phrase in Ephesians that says, He himself is our peace. And for Paul, the gospel is not about a Jew now being able to just have a relationship with God and a Gentile just having a relationship with God. It was all about a Jew and a Gentile sitting at the same table enjoying a meal together. I mean, if you really look through all of his letters, that's his mission. That's what makes him upset. He says the gospel has not worked and is not understood if all the things that separate humanity are not being overcome. And the highest evidence of this, look at people sitting together, eating together, worshiping together, table fellowship. Just as Jesus ate with the sinners, so Paul called Jews and called Gentiles to eat with each other. Peace, peace on earth is not, I would suggest, a peripheral thing to the gospel. Um, in fact, I've, I've got a little confession here that I would read for you. Um, I believe peace is fundamental to the gospel, not incidental, optional, or peripheral. I don't think it's just inner peace, although it includes that, it's real human peace. So here would be my confession. Peace is at the heart of the gospel, As followers of Jesus in a divided and violent world, we are committed to finding nonviolent alternatives and to learning how to make peace between individuals, (coughs) with and among churches, in society, 
and between nations. Remember, one of the groups of people Jesus calls blessed, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, are the peacemakers. Um, now, peacemaking itself, I think, is a task the church is called to. Uh, is it a, an achievable task? Um, I'm enough of a realist to think that I can't stop wars, things of that nature. Um, but I also know that I've been called to not only recognize the peace that Jesus brings, the potential for peace that he's brought, but also my job to be a peacemaker, to be a reconciler of peoples, of churches, of cultures, of nations. I think one of the most tragic things that's happened to the church, in my experience, as just an American suburban kid, is when the church gets dragged into the fight to divide the world and make it more violent. And it loses any sense of prophetic standing up to those powers. And saying, no, we refuse to play this game. Even if it means we're made fun of, we're ignored, we're irrelevant, or we're killed. We refuse to play the game. You will not get me to add to the division. You will not get me to add or support the violence. I will do everything in my power to make peace. Now, this is different than ignoring the problem. Peacemaking itself is actually very hard. If you've ever tried to do it. Um, Jesus doesn't just say, be peaceful with you. Um, he doesn't do what Paul does. He says, as long as it is up to you, be at peace with other people. Jesus says, be a peacemaker. Which means you, theoretically, would go out to groups not at peace and be, in a sense, an arbitrator, <coughs> a negotiator. Um, I wanted to show you some videos. Uh, there's a, a group, but I'm not, so you can look it up. There's a group actually called the Christian Peacemaking Team, or Christian Peacemaker Teams. And one of my secret bucket list desires has always been to go on a mission with one of these teams. Um, you, they have videos, they post them on YouTube and things of that nature. Basically what they do is they go into the most conflicted regions of the earth, the most violent regions of the earth, with a commitment to nonviolence, saying we're not going to add to the hostility in any form. We're going to either stop it and set up peace or absorb it ourselves. Um, and some of the most moving videos I've seen, they've got videos during the war in Iraq, they've got videos during the war in Afghanistan. Some of those moving ones I've seen, though, are between Israeli and Palestinian people. So they have lots of tactics. Um, the first is, as you probably know, the moment you turn on a video camera, people start acting differently. So often they'll come across an Israeli group of soldiers or a Palestinian group of soldiers beating up on an Israeli or a Palestinian kid, right, abusing their powers. Uh, and they'll start filming and all of a sudden, usually that changes things pretty quickly. Because these soldiers don't want that video <coughs> to go viral out in the world. Um, and one very moving one, they're instructed to go literally get between the hostility. Um, and so it was instructions I got as a teacher, right? As a, a teacher, if a student ever gets in a fight, legally, because of various reasons, I'm not allowed to, I'm not supposed to touch students. 
I'm not even supposed to like restrain them. Like by the book, I'm supposed to watch them fight until the appropriate person can get there and stop them. Um, one exception to this that I had confirmed for me when I became a teacher was I can stand between the students fighting. So that was my go-to strategy. Never happened, obviously. Um, <laughs> but without grabbing a student or touching a student, you can do your best, I don't know exactly how it would happen if they're wrestling or anything like that, to physically get between them. And so if a punch is thrown, you're taking the punch. And psychologically, that is a whole lot of stuff to a fight, right? First of all, you're realizing, I just hit the wrong person. Second of all, if there's videos, you're thinking, I just got videoed hitting the wrong person. Third of all, it makes you think about what you're doing, because usually what you're doing in a situation like that is instinctual and cultural. Why are we beating up on this kid? Because that's what we do. Because we hate these human beings. Because we have all these rumors about how awful they are. We don't think about that they're a human being. They have a mother and a father. They have potential in the world. But the moment someone challenges that assumption, says, well, hey, what are you doing? Can you think for a second? All of a sudden, there's a little bit of humanity sometimes that comes out. People go, yeah, what are we doing? This is kind of silly. It's kind of weird. Maybe this is not worth it. Maybe this is not the right time. Um, and there are hundreds of videos of them doing stuff like this. And... I know the church would take a life insurance policy out if I went and did this. Um, um, but it's remarkable. And in the most remarkable cases, they end up with Israeli and Palestinian soldiers at bars together, sharing their life stories, talking about why the Palestinian hates the Israelite and why the Israelite hates the Palestinian. And they remarkably realize there's no good reason. They were told to hate each other. And then they assume, based on past violence, that that's just how it worked. And by the end of a couple beers, he's like, I really have no problem with you. I still might have strongly, deeply held convictions about your government and things that have happened in history and things of that nature, but I have no desire to harm you. I kind of want to meet your kids now, right? I, I kind of want to trace cell phone numbers. And you see things like that happening. This is an extreme case. Most of us are probably not going to go do this. I would hope not that tithing would go down significantly. Um, but I think this is the attitude Christians should adopt um, in our homes. Not just to get rid of conflict, but to make peace. To make shalom. This is the attitude we should adopt when we see divisions between people when we see hostility between people. And is it easy? No. Is it easier to say out of the way? Yes. Are there clear answers and steps to take to do it? No. One of the messiest things you might ever get involved in. But I think it's what Christians are called to do. When I look at this song this morning, I can't get past that second line out of the, the triplet. And I can't push it to an inner spirituality. I can't push it to Jesus' second coming. Jesus is born. This is a cataclysmic event. The heavens rip open and armies are singing. Heavens also rip open when Jesus is baptized. 
God the Son dies on a cross 2,000 years ago. We can't act like none of that happened. And we're just waiting for a second coming. And until then, we'll live life as normal. Now, Christians believe salvation has come. The Savior's been born. And in fact, one of his prime titles is the Prince of Peace. And I can't tell you how many pictures I've seen of Jesus holding weapons. And I want to spray paint on it, the Prince of Peace. And of the Old Testament prophecies, I said one day when the Messiah comes, we'll take our tools, or take our, our weapons, and we'll beat them down into tools. I don't think we should be waiting to do that. I think that's something we should be doing. Because the Prince of Peace has come. And he's reigning. And we're supposedly following him. Yet so easily we get dragged into creating more division and more hostility. And not doing the work of peacemaking in the world. And it's understandable. I'm not, I'm not trying to get on a high horse and beat down on you. Um, it's easier But if all of us could take two or three small steps each year, that's not even true for the stars. In the next 365 days, if we could do one small act of peacemaking, two, three small acts of peacemaking, what a difference that would make. What kind of a different world would we live in? You know, we, we had a shooter recently who we went to Planned Parenthood clinic and shot it up. I think this is wrong not only because, as most of you know, I am nonviolent Christologically, but because of what I believe about Jesus, I believe that violence is an option. A lot of you don't, and that's fine, but you know that that's where I am. Um, but I also don't think it's a good strategy to even stop abortion. Um, when you think of abortion, you've got to think of, and I'm against abortion, but I'm also against killing human beings. Um, I'd say I'm pro-life, not pro-fetus. Uh, the killers at Planned Parenthood were pro-fetus, but not pro-life. Do you see the distinction? They wanted the fetuses to live, which I'm on, I'm on board with. But they did not want all life to exist. You gotta think, one, who are the actual victims? And who are the perpetrators? Is it the woman who makes that decision? Is she the guilty one? Or in some sense, is she also a victim? Are the doctors performing the abortions? Are they the perpetrators, the murderers? Or in another sense, are they somewhat the victim of a society that's made it legal, of a job that they're simply performing and doing? And if anything, the gospel teaches us that forgiveness is both for the victim and offender. And the Planned Parenthood thing stuck out my mind so much because of this 
few weeks, maybe a couple months ago, Lindsay and I got invited to go to a, a Christian uh, kind of anti-abortion nonprofit organization. And what they do is they, they call them high abortion risk teens. So usually young people, no money, no family support. The people most likely who would consider getting an abortion. And they go and they give them the option of support. They say, if you would not like to get a, it's not a Christian rubbing in your face type of thing. It is all Christian, thoroughly. But they go, if you don't want an abortion, we'll give you the resources to be able to make that happen. So they literally build houses. Uh, and they pay for doctor bills. And they pay for education. And they get these women set up, help them take care of their babies, things of that nature. Um, and there's usually six or seven of them living in a house. Uh, there's a house mother who has devotionals and things of that nature. They have young teenage girls from all faiths, Muslim, Jewish, Christian. Um, they do have an alarming, not alarming, a, a remarkable number of conversion stories to tell. It's funny how when you just treat people like Christ, they come to want Christ, you know? Um, and I thought about that passage in Isaiah. It's in Micah 2. It's repeated in the scriptures. Maybe that's important. About one day, God's people are going to take weapons and turn them into tools. And I thought, what if a better Christian response to Planned Parenthood or to the abortion part of Planned Parenthood would be not to buy a semi-automatic or to use one, but to take one, turn it into a shovel, and start to build a house, and start to collect money, and start offering women who are at risk for an abortion a new way, a sustainable life, a life of love. That, I think, would be peacemaking. I think no peace was made going into the building and shooting people. So Advent is this time of waiting, of preparation. Um, it's a time where Christians realize we're not ready to celebrate Christmas. Um, and there are a lot of things in life that you lose if you don't prepare for it, right? Or even the anticipation. If you were, Christmas, I think, is worse like this for a lot of people. Just the anticipation of Christmas sometimes is as fun as Christmas itself, Right? That kind of gets lost when you're an adult, but when you're a child, I think that's even more so uh, the truth. Just the anticipation of Christmas has all the joys and trappings of Christmas itself. Um, Advent is anticipation. It's waiting. Um, and it's teaching. And what I think this third song has to teach us is that when we see the Christ child, we've got to fully recognize all that involves and maybe today we can start learning the notes of this hymn. Uh, I'm not the greatest singer. I can nail every note of uh, Adele's hello. <laughs> hello from the other side. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Bob. <laughs> but maybe for this song and this season... Before Christmas starts, we start practicing the notes so that when we go and see the baby boy in the swaddling cloths in the manger, we can give glory to God in the highest. 
we can imagine peace on earth, then we can work for goodwill to all men. Be prayer with me. Father, we love you. We thank you for uh, our time together this morning. Uh, we thank you for uh, the scriptures you've given us, for the songs that we can join in uh, in singing and worship. Uh, I pray that you would bless our time. Uh, I pray that you would continue to shape us into people who are more like you, who are able to follow you uh, in a world that's increasingly divided and hostile and violent uh, and unlike you, Father, it's hard. Um, we confess all the ways we fall short of that daily in our lives and then ask that your spirit would do this work of transformation in our hearts that we might be more like you and more like how you called your followers to act and be in the world around us. Um, you're almost here. We're almost done waiting. But still we wait. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Here at First Class.